Hi, friends, and welcome to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast, where we discuss Bible prophecy from a pre-tribulational, premillennial, expositional, and rapture-ready point of view. This is Joel Dover. I'm the former professor of eschatology and dean of biblical studies at Calvary Chapel University, a local pastor for more than two decades, and a student of God's Word. Grab your Bibles and let's dig deep. This is the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. So glad to have you on the program today and pray that you're having a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us again. I'd like to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word as we prepare to jump back into the book of Daniel. And this week, with the Lord's help, we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 9. The first 19 verses record Daniel's prayer of repentance for the nation of Israel at the conclusion of their captivity period in Babylon. And it's really, if you look at the second half, beginning in verse 20, Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks prophecy that is much more relevant to our particular interest uh, in the Daniel text. So we're going to spend a few moments talking about the first portion of the text, do some summarization, and I'll leave you to read most of that on your own. And then I want to spend our time today looking at the 70 weeks prophecy. Let's think about the history. Let's think about where Daniel is. Uh, Let's think about what's been happening now and try to wrap our minds around the interpretation of this prophecy based on those things. So historically, Daniel, of course, was a young Hebrew boy when he was carried away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered Judah and began to deport the most choice and handsome young men of Israel, put them into a Babylonian reculturalization program, and of course, raised them up as servants in his kingdom. God has blessed uh, Daniel in a tremendous way, as you'll recall, and the Lord used him to interpret visions and dreams that none of the Chaldean sorcerers could interpret And so Daniel very quickly, as a young man, even before he finishes the reculturalization program, has the attention of Nebuchadnezzar and rises, of course, to be the the head of all the spiritual things that takes place in Babylon. Daniel served in the administrations of numerous kings and of numerous nations. And by the time we reach Daniel chapter 9, we find that Babylon is off the scene. They have been conquered, of course. Uh, by the Medes and the Persians, which we discussed in a previous podcast. Sometimes Bible students are confused when we get to Daniel chapter 9 because the Bible begins here in verse 1 and says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, Daniel begins to understand the times and discern this vision. But as we look at other places in the Bible, for example, Second Chronicles and Ezra chapter 1, it seems that uh, Cyrus, not Darius, has a more hands-on approach, making decrees to begin the returns of the Israelites into the Promised Land and to rebuild uh, the temple and those sort of things. Uh, friends, I would simply say to you that it's important to remember that the Medes and the Persians were on a joint military venture. Cyrus, of course, is responsible as the general of the military campaign for capturing Babylon, but the scripture Seems pretty clear if you look at Daniel chapter 5, also here in Daniel chapter 9 verse 1, it is uh, implied that when Babylon is conquered by the the Medo-Persian army, uh, Darius is appointed king over this particular region, but we know that the Medes and Persians were co-ruling together, so Cyrus and Darius are ruling at the same time, just sharing different responsibilities over different places at different times. Historically, as we look at the account of Ptolemy, we 
uh, see in his writings the strong suggestion that Darius rules for two years, and then, of course, Cyrus would come and rule for an additional six years or so prior to his death. So we see these two historical figures closely related to one another in the Scripture, uh, almost sometimes used interchangeably because their kingdoms definitely overlap, and there is a most definite co-rule. I want to reference you back to Leviticus chapter 25 and 26, where the Lord is giving commentary on the law. And the scripture says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, speaking, of course, of the promised land, God says, Then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? Verse 3, Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crops. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyards. Okay, So the Lord told them, look, when you get into the promised land, six years plant, you know, sow seed, toil the ground, till the ground, harvest. But every seven years, there is to be a Sabbath rest. You're to just let the land rest. Let the dirt rest a little while, okay? Let it recover from all that you've been doing in it. And what we find in the scripture is that Israel has been violating this Sabbath policy for 490 years. And so there's 70 Sabbaths that have been skipped over a period of 490 years where they've just been plowing the land nonstop year after year after year and violating this principle. Now, in Leviticus 26, God gives them a warning. Verse 33 and 34, God says, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of the desolation, it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. So there is this prophecy in Leviticus that, look, every seven years you're to let the land rest. And if you don't, if you violate this, I'm going to draw you out and send you as captives into another nation, and your land is going to sit fallow until every one of those Sabbaths is made up, okay? And so that's what's happening. The Lord now has carried the Israelites uh, out of Judah into captivity, and they've been now in Babylon for 70 years when we come to Daniel and chapter 9. Now, the Lord does something, again, super interesting here, Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11 and 12, and also Jeremiah 29, which is a very famous and oft-quoted and often misquoted passage, to be quite honest with you, uh, quoted out of context, speaks of the Babylonian captivity, speaks of these 70 years, and speaks of how God will release them, just as he said he would do in Leviticus once the Sabbath rests were paid. So in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, the Bible reads, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There it is, 490 years of violated Sabbaths, 70 Sabbaths missed, 70 years in captivity. Verse 12, then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Okay. And then in Jeremiah 29, you know, verse 11 very well, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, plans to give you a future and a hope. And then the Lord gives that wonderful promise. You'll call on me. 
I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart and so on and so forth. So Jeremiah 29, really, friends, speaking about the restoration of Israel at the end of the 70 years of captivity. Now, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1, the scripture says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king, that is, appointed king, over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So now it's the end of 70 years. Daniel, the man of God, is studying the scriptures. He comes across this prophecy from Jeremiah 25. Daniel discerns the time. He knows how long he's been in captivity. Uh, He's counting the years. He's saying, oh, it's time. The time has come. The time has come for God to fulfill his particular promise. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Cyrus is such an interesting figure in biblical prophecy because he is named in scripture as the specific one that God would use to deliver Israel out of captivity and back into their land. And he's called by name in Isaiah 45, 150 years before he was even born. And so I want you to imagine how neat it would be if you don't know the Lord, you're just a regular, you know, secular pagan like Cyrus was. And a guy like Daniel, who walks with the Lord, says, I'd like to speak with you, Mr. King. And he brings the holy book of the Lord God of Israel and opens the scroll and begins to read Isaiah chapter 45, uh, verse 1 and verse 4. And your name is written right there in, in the scripture. Your kingdom is written right there, again, before 150 years before you were even born. And wouldn't that stir you up? Wouldn't that do something to... Uh, to your heart? Wouldn't that touch you and at least make you say, boy, there is a God in heaven and he has a a, a plan for me. There's a purpose for me. I thought that my life was just going to be about this political venture, but there's a God in heaven who has a divine, eternal plan for me. Well, let me read it to you. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, And he makes a proclamation. This proclamation, of course, is Lord God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. And he says, whoever is here in my kingdom who wants to go back, go back. If you go back and read these texts, he gives all of the articles of gold that were taken from the temple by King Nebuchadnezzar in the days of Babylon that had been stored in the house of his gods. He restores those to Israel. He gives back the temple treasures. He even, listen, he even comes out of the royal treasury of the Medes and the Persians to pay for the restoration of the temple of the Lord. Seventy years, Jerusalem and the temple have lay, have lay fallow, have lay in ruins. And now Cyrus uh, really has this movement of God in his life and wants to see Jerusalem restored. The people go back, the temple standing again. Uh, he's making right everything that Nebuchadnezzar has made wrong. And in the end of it at all, of course, God is simply doing what he said he would do Way back in Leviticus, the people violated the Sabbaths. They have now paid their 70-year debt. The land is rested for 70 Sabbaths. Now Daniel begins to pray for his people. In verse 3, the Bible says that Daniel, discerning the times, responds with prayer. The scripture says, I set my face towards the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Verse 5, about how they have done wickedly, about their rebellion, about how Israel had departed from the Lord's laws and judgments. Because they didn't follow the word of God. They didn't follow the, prop- the prophets. They did not repent when they were called out by the prophets. And he acknowledges the reason that we're in Babylon is because we disobeyed you. 
The shame, he says, verse 8, is ours. It belongs to us. It belongs to our kings. It belongs to our princes and fathers. We sinned against you. And Daniel says, we have gotten exactly what you said would happen. And then he begins to speak of the restoration. In verse 13 through verse 19, Lord, you said that you would uh, restore us, Lord, and I'm praying that you would turn your anger away. Verse 16, turn your anger away. Let your fury be turned from us. Do what you said that you would do, Lord, and return us, restore us. And he says, turn your ear to us, Lord, hear our prayers. Make your eyes to look upon us and see our desolation. See the city of Yerushalom that is called by your name, your city. See its desolation, Lord. Have mercy on us. Restore us, restore us, restore us, restore us, O God. How wonderful. Now, let's move our attention to Daniel 9 and verse 20. There are 27 chapters of this verse, and we're going to spend the bulk of what time that remains uh, talking about the 70 weeks prophecy. Okay, so let me just read it to you. Daniel 9 verse 20, the Bible says, Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. What a wonderful thing. We're just reading here, friends, about the reality that God hears the prayers of his people. Daniel is calling out, he's repenting, he's praying. Gabriel shows up and says, hey, the Lord has heard your prayer. Uh, we heard your supplication and God has commanded me to come and to give you understanding. Daniel's a prophet. God is going to reveal the things that he's going to do unto Daniel the prophet just beautifully here in the scripture. And so what follows is a vision of a 70 weeks prophecy. The Bible says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome time. After the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. I'd like to point out to you that the Bible is very specific about the intended audience, you know, who's the focal point of this prophecy. If you look back at verse 24, Gabriel is very clear, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So who's the focal point of this prophecy? Well, who were Daniel's people? Obviously, the Jewish people, obviously the Israelites. And what's the holy city? Obviously, that is Jerusalem. And so this particular prophecy is really Israel-focused. Uh, it would be misplaced 
to try to apply this prophecy to any other people group other than Israel and any other city other than Jerusalem. So I want you to note in verse 24, this prophecy pertains specifically to the Jewish people. This is a prophecy about Israel. It's a prophecy about Jerusalem. It's a very Jewish prophecy. Now, the Bible says 70 weeks are determined for Israel and for Jerusalem to do some very specific things. I'd like to point out to you that in the Hebrew, 70 weeks is literally 77s. And so nearly every Bible scholar thinks of this as weeks of years, uh, 70 sevens, uh, each seven is seven years, so 490 years. Again, this fits with the context. If you think about why they're in um, Babylonian captivity to begin with, 490 years of violated uh, Sabbath, 70 uh, Sabbaths paid for. So again, weeks of years here, and it works out historically. You'll see that in just a few moments as well. Uh, as well. But there are some very specific things that this prophecy pertains to. There's some specific things that will happen among the Jewish people and in the city of uh, Jerusalem. And here they are in verse 24 again. Seventy weeks are determined for you all, the Israelites, to, listen, finish the transgression. There is a transgression taking place in Israel right now. And the word in Hebrew is really rebellion. There is a rebellion against God taking place in the nation of Israel right now. Uh, And I want you to notice that the Bible doesn't say to finish all transgressions. No, it says to finish the transgression. And so the Bible is speaking of a very specific transgression. And that is that Israel has by and large rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There are, of course, Messianic Jews, but they're a very small portion of the nation of Israel. And Jerusalem, of course, uh, the city is not yet prepared to welcome in her Savior, the Mashiach Nagid, Messiah, the King Jesus, the Christ. There's been a widespread rejection since the cross of Jesus among the Israelite people. This, listen, this is the rebellion being referred to in the scripture. This is the rebellion, the rejection of the Messiah of God. Also, if you look again at verse 24, not only is Israel and uh, Jerusalem given 70 weeks determined on this timeline to finish the transgression, but also to make an end of sins. In the Hebrew, it's the idea of sealing up the condition of your sin so as to make it come to an end. In other words, to stop sinning against the Lord by this specific rebellion and to have atonement, that is, for atonement to come to you. Thirdly, the season is set apart to make reconciliation for iniquity. In the Hebrew, it's the idea, again, of seeking atonement for your sins. Now, if you get into the language of the Bible here, the Hebrew is very strong. It's it's the idea, look, a very intentional action to seek the, the atonement for their sins through what God has provided, of course, in uh, Jesus the Messiah. Friends, one of the things that the Bible prophesies in Zechariah uh, that will occur just prior to the second coming of Jesus is that the Hebrew people will call upon the one whom they have pierced. They'll call out to Jesus and declare him to be their Messiah. There's a national revival coming, a national Jesus movement coming in the nation of Israel at the conclusion of the tribulation period. Now, the Bible continues in verse 24, not only are they to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, but the Bible says 70 weeks are determined for Israel, for Jerusalem, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That is, to purpose and to cause that everlasting, forever, never-ending righteousness be carried into the nation. Again, messianic. 
Also, they are to seal up vision and prophecy. And of course, we're talking about sealing it up in such a way like you like you're wrapping something up and like you're putting it away. In other words, it's like the prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled get completely fulfilled. Everything is it, it reaches its consummation. Everything is wrapped up, everything is sealed up, every prophecy put away. And then listen to this. Again, the prophecy is for Israel. It's not for Christians. It's for Israel. It's for Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined for them to anoint the most holy. In the Hebrew, it's kadesh, kadesh. It's two repeated words. Literally, the idea is to anoint or to consecrate what the Bible says here is the most holy. Now, in the English Bible, it is capitalized. Most holy is capitalized because uh, it is a messianic title. I believe that what the Bible is teaching us here is that the Hebrew people, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, are going to consecrate the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and declare him to be, anoint him, consecrate him to be the Lord and King of Israel. It's interesting that here in the Hebrew, uh, the phrase most holy is used. In the Greek, the word Mashiach, uh, Messiah, it means the Holy One. And so friends, Verse 24 is just a beautiful picture of a coming national revival that will take place in Israel at the end of the 77s, at the end of the 70 weeks. And I would say to my friends who say, well, the 70 weeks are all concluded. The 70th week occurred in the first century. I would say to you, okay, well, where is the historical picture of all of these things taking place in uh, in Israel? Where's the end of the transgression? Israel's not following the Lord. Israel's not messianic. They're not a, a Jesus nation. Uh, where is the uh, fulfillment of all the prophecies? It, it hasn't happened yet. Where is the very intentional action from the Hebrew people to declare and to decree that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the King and the Master of the nation of Israel? You see, friends, these things have not happened. And so the 70th, the 70 weeks are not yet completed. But what we see is that in the end times, taking all this together, there will be a beautiful messianic Jesus revival that takes place in Israel just uh, prior to the second coming of the Lord. As a nation, they will uh, conclude their rebellion and their resistance to the work of Jesus Christ. As a nation, there will be a very intentional national shift where the people of Israel will become Christ followers. This is going to be beautiful. It's what's prophesied. Uh, in uh, Revelation with the 144,000 uh, and the remnant saved through the Mount of Olives in Zechariah. And then we're going to see the nation, Israel, will intentionally seek atonement for their sins, not through the altar of the temple, not through uh, the sacrifice of blood uh, and blood of lambs and, and uh, doves and these kind of things, but through the precious blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We're going to see in this revival the everlasting righteousness of Jesus Christ cover the nation of Israel, as it welcomes its Messiah. Jesus will reign and rule in the city of Jerusalem. We're going to see that the visions and prophecies yet outstanding regarding all that God will do in Israel will be completed so that they are fulfilled in full. And this is so beautiful. We're going to see uh, the day come when Israel, when the people of God, Israel, when Jerusalem will anoint the Most Holy, which I believe is a coronation service of Jesus Christ, Messiah the King. And what an encouraging, encouraging thing that God gives to Daniel. I don't know that he understood all of this 
But I'm telling you, uh, receiving this vision, he certainly would have been uh, encouraged to know that these times were uh, coming. All right. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. In verse 25, Gabriel speaks to Daniel and says, know and understand. I want to remind you, friends, that God does not want us to be confused about these things. When God gives us prophecy, he wants us to know and understand. He wants us to have spiritual insight and wisdom to comprehend the things of God. And then I want you to see that there is another timestamp here. The Bible says, know and understand that from, F-R-O-M, from, the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that they're going to be a very specific uh, time period here. Now, we'll get deeper into this, but listen, let's start with this decree, the going forth. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to do some very specific things, listen, friends, to restore and build Jerusalem, that's important, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, as we look at the Bible, I mentioned to you before that there are actually multiple decrees that go out, multiple returns where certain political leaders in Bible days were sending people back from, uh, you know, Babylon back into uh, Israel, specifically to the city of Jerusalem to do some very specific things. There are three of them recorded in the scripture, but only one of them fulfills this verse precisely. The first decree was the decree of Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. And Cyrus gave the decree to go back into Jerusalem and to rebuild the house of the Lord. It had nothing to do with rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. It was only a decree to go back and restore and rebuild the temple of the Lord. The project began, but if you go back and read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find that uh, that project faced some opposition, and it was begun but not finished. It was stopped. Decree number two came in the days of Darius, Ezra chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. Darius gives a decree to begin building the temple again. So the opposition comes to an end after a period of rest of years, and now the temple is completed during his administration. But this decree as well had nothing to do with rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, as the prophecy here in Daniel 9.25 demands. It was only the rebuilding of the temple. It's the third decree, the decree of Artaxerxes, found in Ezra chapter 7, verse 11 to 26, and also in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, that really is relevant to us here. Because it's in this account where we find both a decree to restore and rebuild uh, not only uh, the temple that's been completed in the days of uh, Darius, but now to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This prophecy is given to us in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 8 and also in 17 and 18, where the Bible reads, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, notice the time stamps, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, again, the what? The city, Hello, the what? The city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Listen, Nehemiah's concern here is with the city, right? It's with the the city, not 
uh, not the uh, uh, the temple, but with the city itself. Verse 4, Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is an old Lord help me moment. Verse 5, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Jerusalem, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Okay, great. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting there beside him, How long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Listen, that he may give me timber to make beams. For what? The temple? No, the temple's done. To make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then verse 17, I said to them, uh, this is, of course, speaking to the people, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's word spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build, and they set their hands to this good work. So, hey, listen, Nehemiah actually records the decree of Artaxerxes given in the month of Nisan in his 20th year. Okay, so that's a timestamp, friends, where we can see this decree given. It's a timestamp from which we can begin to count the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel 9, uh, 24 to 27. So just a beautiful thing that the Bible records for us, not only the prophecy, but gives us the beginning date with very small margin of error. Now, we know that this corresponds on our calendar, and this has all been confirmed, of course, I've mentioned many times, uh, by the work of uh, British theologian Sir Robert Anderson uh, to March 14th, 445 B.C., and so if we, again, use the Hebrew calendar and begin with that date, the date of the decree of Artaxerxes, Nisan, the month of Nisan, the 20th year, calculated by Sir Robert Anderson to March 14th, 445 BC, we have a start date to begin counting the 70 weeks. Now, the Bible says, again, back to Daniel 9, 25, know, and therefore, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we just read about that, until Messiah the Prince... Hello, that's Jesus. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The Bible says the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So we talked about the from, from the decree. Now until, the Bible says, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be a certain number of weeks, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, Messiah the Prince, let's talk about that just for a moment, that phrase. I want you to understand what the Bible is doing here, friends. The Bible is giving us a very specific length of time between two specific events. The Bible is saying that, listen, from event number one, which is the decree of Artaxerxes, until the coronation of Messiah as the prince of Jerusalem, okay, there shall be a certain period of time, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, when did the coronation of Jesus as the Prince of Jerusalem take place? When, when was it that uh, Jesus walks into Jerusalem, or in this case, rides into Jerusalem and is declared the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords greeted as a king who comes? Well, obviously, that takes place on the day of the triumphal entry when Christ, according to the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, and fulfillment in Luke 19 and similar texts, rides into Jerusalem seated upon a donkey, 
Palm branches are cut, coats are laid in the roads, and the people begin to declare, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the it's the princely Davidic entrance of uh, Jesus, the Davidic king, uh, into uh, the city of Jerusalem in the declaration of his uh, princehood. Now, the Bible says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks between event one, that's the decree, and event two, the triumphal entry. It's interesting here that uh, these are taken in two different sections, uh, the 69 weeks broken down into 7 and 62. This is easy. 7 times 7 is 49. This is simply the period of time it took to literally rebuild the city in Nehemiah's day. While the remaining 62 weeks of years comprises the time from the completion of the rebuilding of uh, the city at the decree of Artaxerxes until the revelation of Messiah as prince. Look, if you just add the seven weeks and 62 weeks together, you get 69 weeks of years. And this is 69 sevens, okay, or 483 years. And if you calculate this prophecy according to the 360-day Jewish calendar, always used in Old Testament prophecy, and you calculate for things like leap years and other anomalies, according to the work of Sir Robert Anderson, it brings us to April 6th in the year 32 AD, which is the 10th day of the Jewish month Nisan. John actually dates the crucifixion of Jesus on the 14th day of the Jewish month Nisan. So it's so interesting, if we take the decree of Artaxerxes, we add the prophetic years of Daniel, it brings us to the triumphal entry. Four days later, John records the date of the crucifixion. The 69 weeks prophecy begins with the decree of Artaxerxes to go forth and restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We have that date. The 69 weeks ends with the declaration of Messiah the Prince, that is the triumphal entry. Now, I want you to note that verse 26 is actually a gap verse. The 70th week begins again in verse 27. These things take place between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. Watch this, verse 26. After the 62 weeks, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So what happens after the conclusion of the 69th week? Well, Messiah is going to be cut off. The Hebrew word is karat. It speaks to his execution. That is the crucifixion of the Lord. But the Bible says he's crucified not for himself. Isn't it interesting to think that Jesus was crucified just a few days after he was declared the king and prince by the people and that he died to atone for the sins of those who sent him to the cross? Before the 70th week begins, we also see that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, friends, this tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us that the Lord knows that Titus Vespasian is going to lead the Romans into Jerusalem to destroy uh, Jerusalem, to ransack what's been rebuilt here through the decree of Artaxerxes, to take the city down. God has that foreknowledge, of course. But it also dictates to us clearly and without argument that there is a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. Because the Bible gives us the from and until the 69 weeks is the decree of Artaxerxes until the declaration of Messiah the Prince. Verse 26 says, after that, there's going to be certain things that happen. There's a gap of time here. We're going to see uh, Messiah cut off. That's the crucifixion. We're going to see uh, be some 30 years later. If you count it historically, we're going to see uh, the Romans come under Titus Vespasian, destroy the city and destroy the sanctuary. Uh, we're going to see Jerusalem. If you look again at verse 26, we're going to see it destroyed with a flood, this great military invasion. 
uh, and there's going to be an end to it. It's going to be put to an end. And then the 70th week begins in verse 27. So, you know, it's clear in the scripture, the way this is written, that there is a gap of time between the 69th and 70th week. How long is the gap? That's the question Bible scholars debate. How long is the gap? It's my belief as a pre-tribulational theologian that uh, the gap is an unknown period of time. What I do know is that verse 27 says that the 70th week begins with a very specific event. Again, we've got to be very specific with the Scripture. We take the Scripture literally. In fact, I, you know, I've shared with you before, the longer that I study the Bible, especially Bible prophecy, the more literal I become. I have never moved from a literal to an allegorical interpretation. I've always moved into a more literal interpretation because of the precision of of Bible prophecy. It is amazing as we study these things, how precise the Bible is. So look at verse 27. How does the 70th week begin? The Bible says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The 70th week begins with the confirmation of a covenant, and it is a covenant confirmed by this specific figure that verse 26 refers to as the uh, prince who is to come. I believe that that's the Antichrist. I believe that that is a future global leader that will lead this conglomeration of 10 nations. Uh, Think about the uh, 10 toes, the iron mixed with clay. Think about the 10 kingdoms, the 10 horns, Daniel's previous visions. I'm looking for, if I understand prophecy correctly, a revitalization of the old Roman Empire in some way, 10 nations reconglomerating together again at the right time and led by what the Bible says is a little horn, the Antichrist. This is the, the prince who is to come. And so he, this prince, inaugurates the 70th week by confirming a covenant with many, and it's a seven-year covenant. The Bible says it will be confirmed with many for one week. It's a seven-year peace treaty, some kind of some kind of peace covenant, okay? And that covenant begins the 70th week. The rapture does not begin the 70th week. The rapture occurs before the 70th week. This happens in the gap. How much time between the rapture and the covenant? I don't know. No one knows. But the 70th week count begins when this prince who is to come confirms a covenant with many for one week. I believe the Thessalonian letter is clear that the church, the Holy Spirit, has to be taken out of the way that presently restrains the rise of this last day's global kingdom. And then Antichrist will rise and then the covenant shall be established. Now, the Bible says he'll do some specific things. In the middle of the week, that is 3.5 years into his covenant, certainly with Israel. Remember, Israel is the focal point of this uh, particular prophecy. He shall do some very specific things. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, wait a minute. How could there be sacrifice and offering in Jerusalem if the temple has been destroyed by the Romans in verse 26? Friends, there's an implication here. The implication is that sometime during this gap between the 69th and 70th week, perhaps even into the 70th week, that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt and restored. And it's very likely that this covenant that is confirmed involves the covenant of the reinstitution of sacrifices in a rebuilt Jerusalem temple. That's a little bit of conjecture because the Bible does not specifically say, but there's an implication here. But there shall be sacrifices and offerings again in Jerusalem, in a rebuilt Jerusalem temple. And one thing that will take place here is that this prince of the people who is to come will make a seven-year covenant, and according to the Bible, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, will stop the sacrifices. He'll break his covenant. He'll break the offering. 
And then the Bible says, on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. This phrase, the abomination of desolation, is a very specific referenced event, a clearly referenced event in the scripture. I want to defer uh, looking at Daniel 11 and 12 until we get to those texts, but we're going to see that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel is a very specific event, and that event is described in the scripture as the Antichrist figure, the little horn, coming into the temple of God, sitting down on the throne of God at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation, breaking his covenant with Israel and declaring himself to be the Almighty and simultaneously demanding the worship of the entire world. This is described for us in a number of New Testament passages as well. Think about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation gives it to us in several ways. It gives it in days, it gives it in in months, gives it in years, so that we can calculate the timing of this breaking of the covenant and this abomination of desolation in, in a number of ways. Revelation speaks of a time when um, inhabitants of the earth will not even be able to buy or sell unless they take the mark of allegiance to the beast, that is, to the Antichrist. And it's a mark of allegiance that is related to religion and worship. So friends, take the book of Revelation very literally as well, and it fits within this 70th week of Daniel. But Jesus spoke of the abomination of desolation on a number of occasions. In Matthew 24, verse 15 to 22, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the house stop, not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Listen, in Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking of future things, not past things. We have not yet seen a time in human history where, listen, uh, there have been such great tribulation. There's never been anything like it, and there's never anything that will ever be like it, and that people you know, would perish, that no flesh, that all humanity would pass away unless it, unless it were shortened. We've not seen that. We've not seen the threat of global annihilation of the human race. This is yet future, ladies and gentlemen. And then in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus says there, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so this is a very specific phrase, the abomination of desolation. It refers to the little horn antichrist breaking his covenant in the middle of of the 70th week of Daniel that hasn't begun yet, and it's a time of great and awesome tribulation like the world has never seen. It's the declaration that, hey, I am God and all of the world must worship me. And the Bible indicates that even until the consummation, go back to verse 27, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolation. And so, listen, there's a determined time. There's a, a consummation of this uh, 70th week. It's seven years at the three-and-a-half-year mark, abomination of desolation. But three-and-a-half years later, it comes to the end. In the Hebrew, it's a little more literal. The Hebrew literally says, and until the end of the war, it is determined that additional desolations will 
come. Okay, my friends, that's the end of Daniel chapter 9. Let's do a quick recap. It sets forth a timeline for whereby we can identify the Messiah. Daniel chapter 9 also sets forth the scope of the tribulation period so that we can properly understand the book of Revelation. That is, everything in the book of Revelation fits within the 70th week of Daniel, which begins with a peace treaty uh, by the prince who is to come, who I believe is the Antichrist. The scripture also encourages us that there's going to be at the consummation of that that 70th week, a national revival wherein the people of God in Israel will confess their sins. They will end their rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. They will call out for the one whom they have pierced. According to Zechariah's prophecies, uh, Jesus will be coronated and inaugurated once and for all as the King of Israel and will sit on the throne of thrones in Jerusalem. That's never happened. There's never been a time in history when, as a nation, Israel has called out, the Jewish people have called out to Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so here's where we are, friends. We know that the 69 weeks have passed. We are now waiting as we are in the uh, the gap. We are in the interval between the 69th and 70th week. In Luke 21, 24, the Bible says, "...and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until..." The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is quickly coming to an end, my friend. What's God been doing in the gap since the time of the cross? He's been reaching the Gentile nations with the gospel. Those who are seeking the Lord, those who hear the gospel are being saved and saved in large numbers and saved now for two millennium. God is presently gathering the other sheep that he refers to here in John chapter 10. We're it. If you're Gentile, you're of the other sheep. And the Lord knows when the last sheep comes into the kingdom. And it's my understanding that when the last Gentile sheep has come into the kingdom, that Jesus will, will call believers home by way of the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18. With the rapture, I believe, comes a cataclysmic shaking of the globe. This creates opportunity for Antichrist to rise, to create this covenant, to restore and uh, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, to uh, restore the sacrifices and offerings. And then, of course, the abomination of desolation takes place halfway through that. This brings in what the Bible calls the time of Jacob's troubles, a tremendous period of suffering for uh, Israel. We also call that the Great Tribulation. And it culminates with this national revival that's mentioned at the end of the 70th weeks and also prophesied in Zechariah where Israel calls out for Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And the Lord does. He returns. He comes down and defeats the enemies of Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. The Mount of Olives is split into two. A remnant is saved out of the nation of Israel, and the Lord establishes a literal reign and rule, a literal kingdom upon the earth. How exciting. This is so exciting. Well, friends, I want to thank you for listening to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. I'd encourage you to like and to subscribe. That way you can be updated every time we drop new content. We try to drop on Wednesdays. And I would like to ask you, please, if you have someone in your life, a pastor, a small group leader, Sunday school teacher, family member, maybe a co-worker who would be blessed by this kind of Bible teaching, would you share the podcast with them and tell them about what we're doing here as we're just tracking through what we believe to be prophetic passages, verse by verse, passage by passage, and looking at building a uh, an understanding of a pre-tribulational, premillennial uh, eschatology uh, that is our study of the end times, thinking about all that the Bible teaches about the things that are to come, the things that have occurred, the things that are, and the things that are to come. May the Lord bless you. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next week. 
Reach out with any questions, comments, or of course your cries of outrage. We'll see you again next time. God bless you.